Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words, and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off, so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it, and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and say, Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more, because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Jeremiah 51 verses 60 to 64. You're listening to Word Fitly Spoke, and I'm Zellan Heidi, here today with David Apple to continue our discussion on the book of Revelation. David, how are you doing today? Doing well, Zellan. It's good to be on with you again. No, it's always it's always a pleasure. I enjoy this this series, which is proving to be our, our longest series out of everything we've ever done on Word Fitly. I mean, I'm not even sure what number we're up to these days. Do you know? Uh, no, I have not been keeping track. Just the <laughs> continuing story. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a good study, but I would be remiss not to ask about the weather out your way. How are things looking? Uh, well, it's hot. It's humid. We, um, I think this week we're in the, we're, if we're not at 100, we're at 99. The humidity is, is good and high. So uh, all the people with pools are happy and the people without pools are just kind of staying inside all day. Now, I will say, Thankfully, in the evenings and in the mornings, the last few days, the humidity hasn't been too intense. So I've been able to sit outside on the porch in the evenings and also in the morning and uh, get my get my daily dose of of UV light. <laughs> Always important. Yes. Always important. How about how about your way? Things are actually pretty nice out here. It's been getting hot for sure. I mean, we had over the weekend, I think it topped out in the high 90s. But it's a little cooler again today. Uh, we've been getting a lot more rain recently, even just little showers that will come through, which is sorely needed in this part of the world. But everything is still green, which is kind of unusual this close to July. I mean, things tend to dry out pretty pretty quickly around here. So the fact that it is still so green is a good thing. I mean, we're, we're very thankful for what the Lord has done for us this year. And the garden is looking good. <laughs> yeah, we our uh, our rainfall. I'd be curious to see when it rains. It comes down hard, but it's uh, it's been at least in the last couple weeks, which is you know that's all any of us can remember, anyways, right? Um, right. In the last few weeks, we haven't had much. So now that being said, it is all still green, and I'm actually thankful for that. I had a, a leak in the roof that I had to repair, and um, it got tested and it held up. So I'm happy with that. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, David, we need to dive into our discussion of the book of Revelation today. So why don't you lead us back into where we left off? So we're kind of in towards the end of chapter 16. Isn't that yeah. right? Yeah, we're in the middle. Well, we're coming to the end of the um, vision of the bowls of wrath. So God has been pouring out his bowls of wrath um, through the hands of his angels. And the, as each bowl of wrath is poured out, there's kind of this similar structure to each bowl of wrath. It's poured out on a particular part of creation. At least that's what John sees in the revelation. And then that thing comes kind of undone. 
And so what we're, we're coming to now in, is the final bowl of wrath. And then that's going to lead into the fall of, or we're going to be, we're going to see an, another image of the enemies of the church and of Christ. And they're going to come in the form of a, a woman, a whore, or as the English standard version so inadequately translates, a prostitute. Uh, and we're going to see again what we've seen before, a beast with a bunch of heads and a bunch of horns. Sure. Okay. So then if if we got through six of the bulls last time, so we got through to the prediction of the, the Battle of Armageddon. Yes. Right? What is the seventh bowl then? I mean, what are what are we looking at here when we when he says the seventh bowl is being poured out? Yeah, I think so. This is good. We're it's good to see that these bowls are leading up to some climactic event. And what they're leading up to is, as you mentioned, the, the War of Armageddon or the Battle of Armageddon, but that doesn't actually come in the vision until chapter, I believe, chapter 19. So what we're going to talk about today is sort of what happens in this in-between before that final war, which turns out to be rather anticlimactic, right? There's, right, there's, right. No, there's really no question about who's going to win. But before that, before we get to that, I think what we're seeing in chapter at, in the seventh bowl and in uh, chapter 17 and 18 is how these forces that were opposed to the church, that were opposed to the Lord of the church, how he is going to uh, overcome them. And so the, the seventh bowl kind of ushers in the final defeat of the enemies of God. And so I, I think what we're seeing ultimately you know, the, we're seeing a, a vision of final judgment. Sure. So this, is there a sense then in which this bowl is a once for all thing, or do we want to see it as something continual as well? You know what I, I mean? Think we, yeah, I think I, I think I see what you're saying. I, the way that I want to read it is similar to what we've talked about with a lot of the vision in Revelation is, I guess, you know, to use a term that maybe gets overdone at times, but I think is accurate is there the eschatology of the New Testament is inaugurated eschatology. So these things that John is seeing have begun, even if they're not fully, they're not fully realized yet. So that whole now and not yet thing, I think there's a helpful application for that here, that the enemies that oppose the church, they do face judgment in time, even if it's not final judgment. Okay, so the different forms that say that the the great whore can take throughout history, some of those things have already happened. But the final blow, the final defeat, the final judgment is still ahead of us. Sure. Okay, well then lead us into this part of chapter 16. So let's let's take it at least to a verse or two at a time. Yeah. All right. So the um, I mentioned the similar form that all of the pouring out of the bowls take. Here's how it goes. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. So no longer just um, the waters or the land, but now kind of the whole atmosphere is coming under, is going to experience God's wrath. And there, I think you can think of, you know, what St. Paul calls the prince of the power of the air, you know, the air as the the total environment 
of the of the unbelieving world. Um, right, right. And a loud voice came out of the te- out of the temple from the throne, saying, "It is done." Right, reminiscent of "It is finished." It's the the Greek word is a little bit different here. It's not as Jesus says, "It is finished" at the cross, but it is it is done. A different Greek word, but certainly there's a similarity there, right? Right. And and I think and I think we shouldn't overlook the fact that this voice which speaks comes from the throne. Because who is it that is sitting on the throne in heaven? It yeah. is it not the Father, right? Right. The Father and the Lamb has taken his place next to the Father. Yep. Right. So the fact that this voice, after the pouring and, and I like how you put it, pouring out onto the air in you know, into the domain of the territorial spirits into the domain of, of Satan, this bowl is poured out and now it is done like the judgment has been rendered. Right? Yes. Because when Jesus says it is finished, what he means is that things have come to their completion. Like it's come, the fulfillment has come. But I think what the voice of God is saying here after this bowl is being poured out is it is done. The verdict has been rendered. There is no more there's no more trial. This this is the the judgment, as as yeah. you put it, laid down upon these powers. Yeah. The actually, when you read the Passion of Saint John, and if you you know that's what we always read on Good Friday. There's so much in John's Gospel, especially of Jesus talking about you know now is the now is the ruler of this world cast out, and now he is coming for me, but he has no claim on me. You know, when he goes to the cross, especially in John's gospel, you get this sense that he's going to war, you know, and he's going to lay down his life that he may take it up again. And what he finished at the cross now is going to be permanently, publicly seen in all of its, all of the outworkings of redemption are now taking place. And the prince of the air is going to be cast out. And before we get to the Prince of the Air, his beasts and his his allies, everything that he inspired is going to be dealt with first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that yeah, so then in, in chapter sixteen, what follows then is a whole bunch of, you know, apocalyptic stuff. There's lightning, there's rumblings, there's peals of thunder. These are um, the whole creation is uh, God is coming in his as the judge. You can think of Psalm 18, the Lord rode on the on the wings of the cherubim. There was thunder before him and hailstones and clouds and thick darkness was his canopy. As God comes here to give the final judgment, there's all kinds of all kinds of signs in the heavens above. And then what happens in verse 19, the great city, so he comes and there's a city that's split into three parts. The cities of the nations fall and God remembered Babylon the great. And so Babylon comes into view as what God is going to deal with as the first part of this, um, the pouring out of the seventh bowl. Right, right. Well, and the great city itself is something that we've seen before, right? Because back in, oh, what chapter was it? Chapter 11? You had reference to the the prophets whose dead bodies were lying in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their yes. Lord was crucified. I really do think that there is a connection here, you know, because it's the same language of the great city being, well, earthly Jerusalem. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and what's so interesting here, though, is the chain, you know, in chapter 11, Jerusalem is called spiritually Sodom and spiritually Egypt. And now it's spiritually Babylon. And so somehow all all of these things apply to Jerusalem. And and I think that that's what's really the whole mystery of chapter 17 and the mystery of the woman, the whore of Babylon is who is she? What does she have to do with Jerusalem, you know, in the apostolic age? And what does that mean then, you know, in the time, in the, in the history of the church, where do we see the manifestations or the instantiations of that same great city, even if we're not talking about that region of the world any longer? Right. And we'll, we'll get to talking about the, the great whore. But I think seeing this as a judgment which is being laid out upon earthly Jerusalem, we have to understand that this is kind of like Paul's distinction between in, what is it, Galatians, where he says the Jerusalem which is above and the Jerusalem which is below. Right. So this is not talking about Jerusalem in the sense of like the church or anything like that. This is Jerusalem which is persecuting the prophets, which is refusing to listen, which is putting to death those who were sent to her, you know, stoning them, that sort of thing. The Jerusalem upon whom God was pouring out his judgment at that time. Yeah, and who was Jerusalem, who was actively killing the apostles, right? right. And and everywhere St. Paul goes in his mission, Jerusalem, so to speak, follows him and tries to undo everything that he's done. That's why Galatians, when Paul writes to the Galatians, you know, what do the Galatians know of Jerusalem? Well, they know the Judaizers who've come up from Jerusalem and have tried to undo Paul's gospel. They've preached a different gospel. And so Paul is telling them, look, don't go back. You're going backwards. You're going back to the Jerusalem that is below when what you really should, what you really want to be part of is the Jerusalem the heavenly Jerusalem, who, you know, in the end of Revelation, heavenly Jerusalem comes down and takes up, fills the whole, the whole world. Right, right. So we, like I say, we do want to keep that in mind here when we talk about the wrath, which is being poured out. This is the unbelieving Jerusalem. This is the, the symbol of all of God's enemies wrapped up into one, basically. Yes, and I think that's this goes back into what I was saying, what we were saying before, is is what John's seeing have these things taken place? Well, not fully, but they have taken place in part. And the way God dealt with earthly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is below, um, you can see what happened if if you you've got to read your your Roman and Jewish war. You got to read Josephus a little bit. You got to read Gibbon uh, because that. What happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD is critical for understanding final judgment. You know, the way that the way that Jesus prophesied about the fall of Jerusalem was not just like this is just what happens sometimes to earthly kingdoms. No, it was an act of um, it was an act of judgment on Jerusalem, similar to the flood, similar to Sodom, similar to the plagues that fell on Egypt. And, uh, and now what we're going to read about here is it's like what happened in Babylon when the Medes wiped out the Babylonians. You know, if you read the book of Daniel, it all happened in one night. 
Right, right, right. Well, and especially it says in verse 19 that he remembers Babylon in order to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Uh, That idea of draining the cup, like she is receiving the fullness, right? She's not getting just a little sip of it. She's getting the dregs. She's getting down to the, the grit at the bottom. I mean, it's God is not holding back in his judgment. And I think yeah. that's something we need to, to point out as well. Yeah, even the, the way that it's written, right? It's not just that she drank the cup of wrath or the cup of fury, but you get that doubling up. This is an instance of what you might call a Hebraism, the fury of his wrath, you know, that piling on of the genitive case in Greek that emphasizes the point that this is, this is it. This is everything being poured out. Right, right. And so God, well, I mean, this goes back to what we talked about in the previous episode, right? The, the wrath of God being poured out upon the enemies of the church and how that is something, you know, we can rejoice in and stuff like that. But the fact that God remembers Babylon, remembers this great city for her sins I mean, it shows that God does not forget the things that his people are suffering and he will make this city pay for the things that he, that she has done to his people. Right. This is the, this is the cry of a lot of the imprecatory Psalms start this way. How long, how long, how long, and then call for God to come and visit, you know, remember us and when it, when it calls for remembering us, well, God remembers his people when he remembers their enemies and he acts decisively. In this case, you know, once and for all, he will act in the end. Um, or if we want to kind of see this under its full final form on the last day when Christ comes, he's going to open the books and there's going to be full judgment and nothing will be forgotten. Nothing will be overlooked, right? And that includes what the enemies of the church have done to the church. They will pay for what they've done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and something to keep in mind here too, when we're talking about all of these things, you know, the things that we're going through right now, like the, the, the things that the, the powers of the world are trying to force on people, you know, trying to make us do, you know, God does not forget those things. (laughs) God is not just ignoring us and saying, well, you just kind of got to deal with it. What we endure for the sake of the kingdom will be remembered by the Lord and he will give us justice in the end. And I think that's something we should keep in mind. And don't, don't you think that's part of the, that's part of the testimony that the church is supposed to proclaim to the powers that be. Right. The, the church needs to proclaim somehow in some way, whether it's through, you know, God raises up mighty men at different times to, you know, directly oppose kings and emperors and call them to repentance. But part of that call to repentance is that, um, listen, you kings, be warned and be wise. You will you will come before the judgment seat of Christ and you will have to answer for the things that you've done, for the policies that you've proposed and for the way that you have, the way that you've treated the church, even if, you know, even if you are a pagan king, right? Nebuchadnezzar had to face uh, judgment for what he did. And the Caesars had to face judgment for what they did. And every every ruler will come before the seat of the judgment seat of Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, why don't you finish out this chapter here before we go to break, David? Yeah, so then, okay, so Babylon is, and it's going to come back to Babylon, but um, then you just have kind of the final fallout of this. So verse 20, every island fled away, no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Um, So again, you have sort of this mixture between Egypt and Babylon, you know, the as this act of judgment happens, it sounds like it sounds like the plagues in Egypt all over again, except it's more severe than ever. And I think again, what's in view is ultimately final judgment, but also in time, as the Lord deals with the different forms of Egypt or the different forms of Babylon, these things like this happen. Well, and I think also in verse 20 with the islands fleeing away and the mountains being disappearing, basically, I think that is to emphasize that there is nowhere to go, right? It's not like we can escape to an island to get away from God's wrath, like Jonah tried to do when he went to Tarshish. You know, there is no place to go. (laughs) The the wrath is here and you got to you got to face it kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good point to make because, you know, when Jesus talks about the fall of Jerusalem, he says uh, to the Christians, when you see these things begin to happen, then flee to the mountains, right? Get out. And right. I, I like what you're saying there. There are there's no mountains to run to anymore. There's right. nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. And also with the hailstones, it reminds me of the book of Joshua when, you know, God cast down the hailstones like in chapter 10 on those who are being driven uh, before Israel kind of thing as they're pursuing them so that more die because of the hailstones than actually were killed by Israel on that day. That God is fighting for his people and by casting down these great hailstones and the people for their part don't actually repent of what they're doing. They're upset that the plague is so severe, but they don't say, well, I guess that means we should repent and turn towards the Lord. Right? Yeah, this is this is another example of uh, when you read the book of Revelation, it's like, a, you know, it's a litmus test. How well do you know? Every seems like every syllable here has some kind of resonance within something from the Old Testament. And all these things are, are kind of being drawn together and will finally be seen on the last day. All right. Well, very good. Well, we're going to go into our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zoe and Heidi here with David Ampold, continuing our discussion on the book of Revelation. Okay, so David, we finished up with chapter 16 in the previous segment, talking about the seventh bowl and kind of talking about how this is a, a picture of the final judgment being laid out upon you know, Satan and upon his minions. But now we're getting into chapter 17 with a very vivid image that we have here. So can you can you lead us into this chapter? Yeah, well, the question is, um, pro or co- for or against prostitution? Go. Uh, obviously against, but... <laughs> In any case, chapter 17 is about a prostitute. It's about a right. whore. And we want to use the word whore, if for no other reason than in honor of that um, that great saint, the descendant of St. George, Kyle Rittenhouse, who uh, his, I think, I can't remember what it was, but somehow in his trial, it came out that he went under the name uh, Four Doors More Whores. In chapter <laughs> 17, in chapter 17, of course, the whore of Babylon is uh, a negative image, right? And... Uh, I think, Zelwyn, what would be good, uh, let, let me just read the description here. Um, I don't think our listeners are probably reading along with their Bibles open. We didn't tell them to. So I'm going to read it, and then we can go through the details and talk about who she is. This, uh, just to kind of remind you, at the end of chapter 16, uh, God remembered Babylon the Great, that city. And so now in 17, I think you have a little bit of an expansion of who is, who's in view with Babylon the Great. And what happens is it shifts from talking about a city to talking about a woman. So here's what it says. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, such a, a uh, It's such a wordy translation, but in any case, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot to, to break down here. And I think maybe just kind of starting at the beginning, obviously this is a vision of judgment, right? He says, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, the great whore, whatever. You know, this is not her glorification this is not uh seeing her in in all of her glory like that this is seeing her as she is as god is pouring out judgment upon her Mm -hmm. yeah and that that comes at the very end of the chapter of chapter 17 so spoiler alert the beast who she's riding is going to rip her apart and but before she gets ripped apart um john is given the vision of who she is. Right. And I, I think it's worth just kind of going through the details here and just to kind of say, all right, well, what is, what's he really seeing? Okay. Right. So she's, first of all, maybe we should start this way, Zelwyn. The, the, there's two, there's two things coming into view. There's a whore and a beast. We've seen two, two um, enemies of the church before 
who worked in cahoots, who were allies. Back in chapter 13, after the dragon chases a different woman, which we'll talk about in a minute, but um, the woman who gave birth to the son in chapter 12, he chased her into the wilderness, but couldn't get her, right? She was taken away to a secret place. So then in chapter 13, he raises up his two beasts, the beast that comes out of the sea, which had seven heads and 10 horns and was full of blasphemous names. So I think there's a, an overlap between those two. Um, and then the second beast that he raised up was a beast that came out of the land. And what I would, what I would kind of say to you here, Zoen, and you can, you can ask me uh, why I would take this stance, or if you want to push back on it, please feel free to. But I think what we're seeing in chapter 17 is just another form of those same two beasts. One of the beasts doesn't change at all, still has seven heads, still has 10 horns, still has lots of blasphemous names. But that second beast that came out of the land uh, has now shifted and uh, has the, you know, shapeshifters going on here, has become the form of a, of a great prostitute and appears now as this woman in fancy clothing, finely arrayed. Um, there's a lot going on, but that's, that's just what I would say kind of as a starting note. It's the same enemies, just one is in a different guise. Well, and with the, the, the beast, okay, let's take the beast first of all. You know, we were not told beforehand a lot about his appearance. And the fact that he is called Scarlet here, I think is telling because the, the word translated as Scarlet or kind of a, a reddish color is something that we saw before with Satan, right? Satan is described as the, the red, the red dragon, the one who is, you know, carrying out his war against the saints. And you also see in chapter 13 that Satan gave his authority, gave his power to that beast, right? So I think the scarlet aspect of it, the reddishness of this beast shows he is like his father, right? He is like the one who gave him authority. So we have that kind of a shift here, which is ex expressed here in this chapter. But as far as the other beast goes, the second beast, I do think that where you're coming from with talking about this as the, the beast on the land is fitting, probably for a couple of reasons. Because you remember before, how is the beast before described? As one having horns like a lamb, right? Well, lamb, it had the horns of a lamb and the voice of a dragon. Right. But the fact that it has horns like a lamb shows that it's already a beast which is deceptive, right? It is one who wants to appear as if it were the lamb, one who wants to appear as if it is Christ and speaking for him, even though its voice is actually satanic. Right. So, so I, I, I could get behind, you know, what you're saying here is that now this beast has transformed itself again in order to appear as a woman who is kind of the, the anti-church because that's what this beast is all about to begin with. Yeah. Right? I think that's, that's a great point to make that second beast, the land beast, if you remember, um, performed all kinds of signs and miracles, right? So it in chapter 13, and now instead of impersonating the lamb, this, this, that second beast impersonates the church. 
So if you compare the, and this is why I think the guise shifts and it appears as a woman. So in the book of Revelation, there are other women who appear. Um, the first time that we have a woman is in chapter 12, the woman who is clothed like the sun, you know, clothed like God. And that woman, if you recall the story, gives birth to a son who then is taken up into heaven. And uh, that woman is a, is a picture, is a vision of Israel of old, reduced down into one in the Virgin Mary. And then she is taken out into the wilderness. And the, the dragon, when he can't get the son of the woman, goes after the woman herself. So the woman there in Revelation 12 becomes a, a symbol of the church as a whole. Right. And we will see that woman again at the end of the book of Revelation coming down out of heaven. So the Jerusalem that is from above, when she comes down as the bride of the lamb, she comes down and she's arrayed like a city. So these things, you know, it's a kaleidoscope of sorts. The woman is a city. And here, Babylon the Great uh, is a city that now appears as a woman. And at the end of the chapter, it's going to spell out again that we're actually talking about a city. Okay, so keep keep your mind open to um, just how these different images are are kind of blending together. But for our purposes here in identifying the woman as that second beast, the prostitute as the second beast, I think what what's being impressed on us is this: that it is it is the false church. Right? It is all of the different forms that this false religious, this false spiritual, this fake Christianity takes, and sometimes they're quite impressive. Um, sometimes they, they actually look just like the real church, but actually, all along, it's, it's a great whore. Right, right. Well, and the woman before, so let's, you know, the woman of chapter 12, you know, being arrayed with the sun, with the the moon under her feet, and the stars about her head. If I'm if I'm remembering yep. all that imagery correctly, you know, she is, like you say, arrayed like God. You know, because she is from above, that sort of thing. But this woman, the the whore, arrayed in purple and scarlet, gold, jewels, pearls. She is wealthy. In appearance, like she does appear to be someone who has great power, who has, you know, is very high in the world, but all of her adornments are worldly, right? Whereas the woman before was adorned with heavenly things. So, I mean, it is it is very much this picture of she looks impressive, she looks enticing, but at the same time, she is entirely worldly. And whereas the woman before gave birth to a son you know, that is Christ the Lord who went up into heaven, this woman gives birth to nothing. She's simply a prostitute. She is simply a whore. Yeah, well, she gives birth to other whores. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> she is the mother of all prostitutes, right? And, and there's so much, again, in Revelation, there's so much uh, um, scriptural background here. So why is she seated on many waters? Well, uh, in Ezekiel's prophecy, Babylon is described as the city on many waters, or maybe it's in Jeremiah. Um, but Babylon, the city itself, was on the Euphrates River, and Babylon had all kinds of canals, right? So remember when Ezekiel has his visions, he's often next to the Kabar or the Chebar Canal. 
And so Babylon itself was this, you know, part of what made it a wealthy city was that it had great irrigation, uh, you know, so it, it was literally a city on many waters. And so now that language is picked up as this, this woman, this whore is depicted as a, a woman slash city. And so she's described in the same way that Babylon was. Um, well, now and to, yeah, go I ahead. Say, with, with waters too, though, um, figuratively speaking, waters re- often refer to peoples, to people groups. Um, you see this in the Psalms, for example, the roar of many waters, the roaring of the people kind of a thing. So yeah. to be seated on many waters is not only just literal waters, it's also that she has dominion over the nations of the earth. Yeah, she extends through, she she gets her fingers through, she, she has her houses set up, um, her houses of ill repute are set up through the whole, the whole world. Right. Um, and that's why I think it's fitting to say that the whore of Babylon, yes, there will be a final form of this, you know, if there will be a final boss, so to speak, but there's also, um, there's a little boss that you have to face at the end of every level. Right. And so seeing, you know, and this, this gets into then, if you look through scripture, um, the different enemies of God's people, you've got Sodom and you've got Egypt and you've got Assyria and you've got Babylon and you've got finally then Jerusalem. And then you've got Rome. And, you know, they, they take different forms, but in all of those different guises, it's the same. What the book of Revelation shows us is that it is all demonically uh, inspired, even though it takes a little different form in different places. Well, which goes to show then that uh, there will eventually be the ultimate expression of, of the whore, right? And perhaps that ultimate expression is something that we're beginning to see. Um, this idea of, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before we got into the episode, but that, you know, whatever the, the reigning secular orthodoxy is, that I think is an expression of what John is seeing here. And basically the, the question becomes, you know, are you going to follow after the woman in the wilderness or are you going to follow after the, the whore? Who's also in the wilderness, right? That's a, another one of these ways that um, you see that this whore is trying to ape the true church, right? So she goes to the same place. Now, maybe she's out there to persecute the woman, but I think it's also she's trying, you know, the last place that the woman was seen was in the wilderness. So the whore goes up and sets up in the wilderness as if she were the true church. Um, one, Just one last little detail, Zelwyn, and then we can talk about the you know, the present day kind of application. Notice that it says on her forehead, she has a name. Mm-hmm. So this, this almost sounds like the description of the high priest of Israel, right? He has the Lord's name placarded on his turban, right? Holy to the Lord was the, right. and so I think this, this woman is being set up as a priestly, it's a religious, um, this is a, uh, the religious forces. And again, it's, it's hard to, you know, they don't have this division of church and state in the ancient world like we do. So it, maybe this is a bit anachronistic, but I think it fits that the, the whore here represents all sorts of false religion and all false religious authorities that try to look like the true church to lead, but end up leading people astray. 
and she's in allegiance. She's allied, at least for a time, with this other beast, which I, I think I would read as the secular authority, um, the, the political, what we might call political authorities. The two f- work together. And like you said, in our day and age, you can often see that, that religious leaders who are supposed to speak for God end up just parroting whatever, you know, whatever the current narrative is. Right. Well, and also with uh, the forehead, I mean, you saw in the previous chapters that the saints had the name of God written onto their foreheads, right? So there is in that sense kind of a an imitation of uh, the saints in that way. You know, she she wants to deceive. She is alluring. She is someone who is basically saying, you know, come aside to me, you know, my, you know, thinking of like Proverbs, like my husband isn't at home, he's far away, you know, come in and t- taste of my bread, that sort of thing. You know, so I mean, it is, it is something which is meant to be deceptive. And that's why I guess the, the question that I would posit that this chapter is putting to us is, you know, who's your mama? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Who's, who's your mother? Is your mother yeah. the woman in the the true woman in the wilderness, the woman clothed with the sun, or is she the one who is the whore? Yeah. So so think of kind of historical instances of this. Whenever John was writing, whether it was before the temple fell or after, uh, the experience of the apostles in the immediate age after the ascension of Christ was persecution by the by the authorities in Jerusalem. The high priest was sending out men like Saul with letters in their hands, authorized to bind, to bring them back, to kill. And so the the Jerusalem authorities were drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs. Um, you can think of what Herod is the first one to kill. Well, he kills, he's the first one to kill an apostle. Stephen had already been martyred, but then James is the first apostle to actually have his life taken. So in its first instance, at least, we should say Jerusalem, the Jerusalem below, Galatians 4 stuff here, is the whore of Babylon. Now, after the destruction of the temple, after, you know, that is God's judgment is made clear, then the Caesars kind of take over that role, right? And they they make ex, uh, incredible claims about um, king of kings and lord of lords is Caesar, and they persecute the church and kill the martyrs. But if you keep going through history, you see again and again in different forms, the whore of Babylon asserts itself as a religious authority that trot, that that steals people away from the worship of the true God, the true church. And sometimes it sets itself up within the church. So the reformers read this, and of course, who do they think of? They, they think, oh, this is talking about the Pope, of course. Right. And for them, it's like, isn't it obvious? Right. And for us, we read it and we're like, oh, this sounds like what, you know, this is what the, um, the mainline church bodies say. This is, in, in a lot of ways, this is still prevalent in the Roman Catholic Church. But it's not limited to that. Right. It's it's also you can see it in just the total kind of universalistic dreams and aspirations that all kinds of religious authorities put out. They're all I would say they're all if they're not the whore herself, they're the daughters of the whore. 
Well, and especially because what the whore says, you know, the, the blasphemous things that she says and the allure of her is also a temptation to the saints because, well, maybe we just kind of listen to her or, you know, give our pinch of incense sort of thing so that she'll leave us alone, right? So this is where you get, you know, people who are otherwise faithful, you know, they will say things that are in line with, you know, the the reigning secular orthodoxy so that they won't be persecuted, right? Well, maybe we'll just kind of give in at this one point and then that way they'll leave us alone. Or even people who claim to be Christians and yet parrot these things entirely. You know, anything that causes us to say, you know, this is what the Lord says when it actually isn't, yeah, is an expression of what the, the whore of Babylon is. Yeah, that you can see uh, up in verse, what was it, verse 2, It she, her influence, her whoring affects both kings, right? So those who are the political authorities, it's always nice to be able to say, hey, and actually God is the one, we're on God's side, or God, they probably put it this way, God's on our side, right? Right. Um, If you can say that as a a political authority, well, then everybody has to obey you, right? So um, she works in tandem with them, but she also works in tandem. Her whoring influences also the people of the earth, the dwellers on earth become drunk with her wine as well. And you can just see, I mean, even even in our day and age where, you know, godlessness is on the rise, I think I just saw some poll, I don't know who did it, Gallup or whoever, you know, um, 20% of people now say that they're atheists. That means 80% of people still say there is some, you know, now they're not going to believe in the Trinity, but 80% of people in our own countries, Owen, still would say there is a God. And at a basic level, that should mean we should do what he says. So if the whore of Babylon can come along and say, hey, it doesn't really matter who God is, but listen to me and I'll tell you, you know, what you want to hear. I'll tell you what you need to hear. And I'll even tell you that it comes from God and I'll cloak it all in, you know, religious language and ceremony and and whatever Um, that captivates people. Yeah. Well, and especially when the current, let's say, the current drift of society causes someone to basically start to re, like, reevaluate or to question what God has said, right? So, like, like let's just let's just put a real none too fine a point on here. Like, when dealing with issues of sexuality or identity or something like that, well. You know, I know this person over here who claims that this is true. So maybe we should kind of reevaluate what the Bible says. You know, that kind of that that push towards always saying, well, we just know better now. And so we're going to reinterpret the word in order to be in line with this this new way of thinking. Yeah, there's always that temptation. Right. And it's and it's stamped with, you know, for some people, they they want to reject all religious authority. And so they, they don't need a, a, a quote unquote church figure to tell them, hey, this is it's actually OK to to mutilate your body. Um, right. But right. other people, there still is that desire, um, the appeal to God taps into, you know, each person's conscience, which is a God. You know, these things are written on the heart. And so to be able to, to say this comes from God, 
while meanwhile you're just a you know you're just a mouthpiece for the demonic forces in the world that lends an extra level of captivity and that's you know that is the appeal of the whore that's why that's how she works well it's it's nuanced you see that's that's really the issue here right you're, you're you have it too cut and dry when it's actually more more uh, ambiguous and nuanced yeah. but come drink from the the cup <laughs> nuanced posting for days with that we're going to go into our second break we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken Fitly Spoken. I'm Zoan Heidi here with David Apple, continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation. So David, we've been talking about the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17, but now the angel who is there with John is going to start explaining everything. So let's let's take it into the, the next part of this of this chapter. Yeah, so John marvels a great marvel. Uh, is the literal translation. He seems impressed, and, and we don't know, is he impressed by this? Is he disgusted? If if any of our listeners are Seinfeld fans, it's like, um, you know, the painting of Kramer that uh, both repels and attracts. I think there's something of that going on. Um, but in any case, the, the angel says to John, why do you marvel? I'm going to explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast. And it's really now that the angel is going to focus is going to shift from talking about the woman to talking about the beast. Right. And, and what he ends up getting to the, the final point is actually not, you know, there's a lot of details about the beast, but the final point that the angel gets to is that the beast is going to destroy the whore of Babylon. So what looked like it was all working together in the end, actually it all falls apart. Okay, so these things, these things that these um, powers that be that oppose the church, in the end, they they turn in on themselves, right? They destroy themselves, and that's what we're getting to. I think it's worth pointing out here, just kind of a bigger bigger picture thing, Zelwyn. Before God, de- before in chapter twelve and thirteen, you had the dragon appear, and then he raises up his two beasts, and then the image uh, comes after that. Now, as we're coming to the final judgment, they're dealt with in reverse order. So the whore, that second beast that we've identified here, the first beast, and then in chapter 20, the dragon himself is going to be dealt with. So just to kind of, that's just a bigger picture thing. But these things that oppose the church are now facing, facing their judgment. Sure. Okay. Well, then let's, let's delve into the details here. So especially starting like at verse 8. 
it says, you know, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit or from the abyss and go to destruction, which, of course, is deliberately set in contrast to God, who is described as being what is and, and was and is and is to come. Yeah, to come. Right. So in other words, there's this persistence with God, you know, that he always is. Whereas the beast is someone is something that wasn't, isn't, and will be for a little bit, but then again will not be. I mean, yeah. there's very much a very kind of non-existence almost. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it's a it's a parody, um, just like the just like the whore kind of tries to mimic the the true woman the fake church tries to mimic the true church and, and can kind of pull it off, right. Can, can appear that way. So this beast tries to mimic the, the alpha and omega. And in some, in some, to some degree, he's able to pull it off. Right. But what revelation does is unmask these things. So um, he who was and is, and is to come is the Lord Jesus. He's the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now this sea beast or what we're calling the sea beast, this beast with the seven heads and the 10 horns, he wants to present himself as the king of kings and lord of lords. And he can, he sort of pulls it off. You, you see what I mean? Because right, he, right. he was not, but he is, and he is coming again, but only f- he's coming to be destroyed. So there is this sick, uh, the devil always tries to invert right? The inversion, the perversion, he always takes what's true about the Lord and turns it in on itself or turns it upside down. And that's what you see happening with the beast here. It's going to become clear as the angel explains, you know, what the seven heads are and what the 10 horns are that we're talking about kings. We're talking about authorities. And I think, you know, thinking about John originally writing this, uh, I think what's in view has got to be the Roman system of government, but then that becomes a figure again for earthly leaders, earthly authorities, the powers that be. Right. And I think like the, the parody, which we see in the beast is something that is especially true for those, as the book says, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those who will not believe, those who are headed for destruction, will worship the beast as if it is God. Yeah, And I mean, we, we see that even in our own day, the way that some people approach governments and, you know, the, that sort of power and authority. Whereas, you know, governments claim to speak as God, you know, we will, we will care for you, we will provide for you, we will be your all in all from the cradle to the grave, that sort of thing. I mean, taking for itself these divine prerogatives. And yet John, as you say, is unmasking it for what it is. It is a grotesque parody of God, and it is something that is headed for destruction. Yeah, the and you could even see, I mean, different commentators will will take this connection with Rome and they'll try to draw connections between, you know, the history of Rome and the fall of the Republic and the rise of the Caesars and then you know, kind of the demise and the the rebirth of the Roman Empire. And they'll say, you know, here's why he says it was, but it currently is not, but it will come again. And you can see, I think you can, you can see some helpful connections, but 
what I think is ultimately in view here is not to say, oh, this particular head refers to this particular Caesar. It may be helpful to see that, but really what the beast represents and what the beast is, is not confined to the Roman Empire, right? It is right, the, right. How, how should, I don't know exactly how we want to want to say what it is, Zelwyn. It is the, the godless state. Um, it, is, it is human authority separated from God. Right. Well, okay. So let's, let's take it a few more of the details here. And I think that'll help us kind of see this. Sure. Like in verse nine, for example, the angel specifically says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. I mean, you cannot hear seven mountains, especially in this time period, without thinking the seven hills of Rome, right? So it is very clearly meant to be an allusion to Roman authority. And that Roman authority is something which continues even after the fall of Rome. Because if you look at all the various kingdoms which come after the so-called, you know, the, the, the iron mixed with clay in the vision of Daniel, you know, they are all trying to recapture and recreate in some way the glory that was Rome, right? Either by living, you know, continuing on its traditions or, you know, trying to present themselves as if they were Rome, that sort of thing. You know, we still live in the shadow of Rome, whether we want to admit it or not, because of the great influence which Rome had on the West and upon the whole world for that matter. Yeah. And so for uh, for the beast to be pictured in Roman terms like this is, like you say, that expression of that ideal which Rome embodied. And in an ideal which we're still trying to pursue in, to some degree, you know, in one way or another, this yeah. kind of overarching dominion over all things that incorporates everything into itself and yet is an, uh, the full expression of, of just, you know, power and authority, right? Yeah. And in that way, it's, it's not limited to the West. It's not just the, it's not just the heirs of Rome who, who could be influenced by the beast it and fall under its dominion it would be this could be any society right this could be the the human authority in any place at any time but it right. but i do think especially heirs of western civilization um you see this cropping up in maybe more more clear terms well i mean for crying out loud you just look at like in our american context just look at the buildings in washington right they're deliberately designed to evoke Rome and that kind of that time period. I mean, they're deliberately designed that way. And in fact, the American, you know, I mean, the American founders saw themselves as continuing something which was begun in Rome. So, I mean, it is very much this continuity, which we see even down to our own day, because we have because the world has not given up on the idea that Rome was trying to embody. I mean, that God, that, uh, that godless kind of unity under yeah. one authority. Right. right. Which, which goes all the way back to maybe the original instance of it is Babel, right? The tower right. of Babel, where we will make a name for ourselves. We will build a tower up to heaven. We'll all work together. 
and we don't need God. We will attain heaven without the Lord, right? We right. will set up, we will have our utopia. And if we all pitch in, if we all do our part, if we all just get along, we can make this happen. And that rears its, its head all the time. And right. uh, you can see here again, this, this is what I I'm saying, you know, maybe these separating these two out is maybe too cut and dry, but I think it's helpful right? To say that the whore represents these religious claims, and then the beast represents these more political claims. Although, of course, in Babylon, those two went hand in hand, right? Nebuchadnezzar's dominion was not an an atheological thing. It was both political and religious. And so that's why the whore and the beast are mixed together. They don't they don't appear separate. The, the whore rides on the beast and they work. They seem to be working hand in hand. They seem to be working together. Right. And we'll, we'll get to that segment here in just a little bit. But I want to I want to cover a couple other things before we talk about the destruction of the whore. So we look at, for example, in verses 13 and 14 of this chapter. These are of one mind. OK, so at this point. You have the the kings, you know, these various kings who receive their authority for, you know, a short time. They're of one mind. They hand over their power and their authority to the beast, right? Well, so they, they give themselves on. up. Yeah, go ahead. We didn't we didn't make that part clear. So okay. we skipped we skipped those verses. The seven heads, you you went from the seven hills of Rome and we, we started, you know, getting swept up in the spirit here. But um, the seven <laughs> heads are not only the seven mountains reminding us of Rome, but then they're said to be the seven kings, five of who have been, one who is, and one who is yet to come. Right. Then the beast, so you've got this, and and again, here you can look and you can try to say, which of the Caesars is this referring, you know, where does Julius Caesar fit in? Where is Caesar Augustus? Which one is Nero? And you can do that, but I think that the point, of here is not to to try to find the exact reference to which Caesar, uh, but to say that what the Caesars, what the Caesars embody, is this beast. Because then the eighth, the the beast is an eighth one who is of them, but is not exactly of them. Right? He is the he he is you know think of the the symbolism of those numbers. The seven kings are the seven you know they represent the complete Roman. Caesardom, but then the beast itself is an eighth, an even greater form of that, an even greater kind of Roman authority, an even greater state authority, an even greater um, humanistic kind of what society like Babel. And then the ten horns get mentioned as ten other kings who are like the vassals of the seven heads. So they're they're a little bit different, but still in league with those seven heads and they give their authority like you were just about to get into they give their authority to the beast and they all work together with the beast well see i was just swept up in the spirit and i was i was just going man you just gotta go so go on go on (laughs) well and and you make a good point too especially with the, the 10 kings who have not received power and they receive power for a short time i mean i really do think Again, we see an image of of the statue in Daniel, right? That the 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 iron mixed with clay, the ten toes, that sort of thing. All of this is kind of emphasizing 
not only the power of these kings, not only the power of Rome, the power of this ideal, but also the fact that it is quickly coming to an end, right? That it is something which is not going to endure for ages upon ages you know, for forever and ever like it thinks that it will, but it's something which will quick, will swiftly come to an end. But my point was, because this is what I was trying to get at, uh, especially verse 14, they will make war on the lamb. All of these things merge together in order to fight against God, not just against his church. Let's make that very clear. They are making war on the lamb. You know, this is Psalm 2 language, right? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, but how does the, the Lord react in Psalm 2? Do you remember, David? Yeah, he holds them in derision. Yeah, he laughs. <laughs> you <laughs> Watch this, guys. You know, right. they'll make on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. Isn't that a great verse? I mean, it, it's just, it's so beautiful that they're... They're going to fight against him, but the lamb's just going to squash them, and there's going to be no fight. Right. There's not. And for all of the detail and the fascination with the whore and with the beast, then it just says in so simple of terms, they will fight against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them. Yeah. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Yeah. And you, you can see, you know, Psalm 2 is a great instance of this. This is why it's so helpful to, to see, you know, Jerusalem and Rome as sort of the original embodiment of these things, because Herod and Pilate become friends when Jesus comes on the scene and their friendship is that they're, they're going to get rid of the, this would be Messiah. And that's what it says in, in the book of Acts, they actually read that Psalm as, and they understand that Psalm as being about Herod and Pilate representing Jerusalem that is below and Rome, the whore, and the beast come together for a time against the Lord's anointed one, but the lamb conquers them. And then in the history of the church, that victory of the lamb gets played out and the whore and the beast, they keep trying to work together to defeat the lamb by defeating his church. But he continues through history at different times in different ways. His, His victory is made known and it finally will be on the last day. It will be evident and plain and once and for all obvious for everyone to see. Yeah. Well, and something that I also want to really point out here too, uh, when Jesus is called the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, that's not just pretty language. Okay. Because, you know, we, we tend to think of it as like, oh, you know, this is just a beautiful way of saying that he's king over all things, you know, which he is, of course. But it's actually more than that, because Lord of Lords and King of Kings was a very specific political claim, especially from the from Babylon, right? That's how Nebuchadnezzar would have presented himself as the King of Kings. So for Jesus to be called the King of Kings is basically saying that he is the true king, which this false king is not. I mean, it's it's the same reason why we say Jesus is Lord, right? Because who else called themselves Lord, David? I think Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus. Yeah, the Caesars. Right. So it's it's not only a religious claim, it's also a political one, which I think is... All your your titles now belong to us, right? All your base (laughs) is ours. 
the king you want these kings of the earth want to be the king of kings but Jesus is the actual king he is the actual lord that you know far greater than you will ever be kind of a thing yeah and now the now we've touched on the the actual victory of the lamb but I, but I think it is worth pointing out like the the power and the influence that the beast and the whore um, collude together to exert is huge. It's vast, you know, when, and, and maybe to get some idea of that, when the exiles go into Babylon in Israel, it's not like they saw Babylon and just thought this is, this is pathetic. You know, they, Babylon, all of its splendor, all of its majesty was grand and it sucked people away. It sucked people into idolatry. Same thing in Rome, the claims of the Caesar, the power of Caesar, just the, the, all the pomp and show of Rome had a a great pull on people. And so even though, yes, we want to emphasize the victory, I don't think we want to just say like, well, the temptation is minor or insignificant because in our own day and age, the splendor of the world still blinds so many people. It still captivates. And if you're not alert to it and awake to it, you can easily find yourself pulled into the into the cesspool that is uh, the beast and the whore. Well, especially because, like, let's let's put it in our terms, right? You have a government which will say things like "you have to do this," and it carries with it that very strong push that, "oh well, this is the government. How would we be able to fight against it?" Right? I'm just one man. I know, how am I going to withstand the the whole might of the United States government if they try to tell me to do something? You know, that kind of pressure is always there. And that's what the beast and the whore rely on. That kind of intense pressure to conform, that intense pressure to go along because the world is so impressive, at least to our, you know, to us. But the more we emphasize that pressure, the more we emphasize what, you know, the kind of pressure which these two put on us, the much greater the victory of Christ becomes. Yeah. Yeah. And those who are with him are, here's how it says it in Revelation, those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. I mean, you could, you could have a great doctrine of election right there, couldn't you? And, oh, absolutely. and perseverance. Absolutely. So then maybe in our, in our closing time here, Zowin, the final result of these things is shown to John. And again, that this is why it's being shown because the, the whore and the beast have so much power or seem to that uh, John needs to see this and the church needs to be shown what is in store, what the final result is. So I'm not going to read it word for word here, but it goes on to talk about how actually the beast and the whore are going to be that the beast is going to end up hating the whore. So somehow, some way he turns on her and we're not told exactly why, but he ends up hating her and he rips her apart. The beast rips apart the whore of Babylon. And it says, um, here's kind of the mystery of it all in verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So these these 10 kings who oppose the Lord actually end up working for him, right? The right. devil's the devil's authority 
is not is not given free reign, right? He right. For, for whatever reason he's given his time and his little season, but it it comes to an end quickly. Yeah, and even even through their torment of the saints, even through their making war on the Lamb, they are simply carrying out the will of God because God has driven them to this, to do this, to basically be their own destruction. You know, the one beast destroys the other, but also so that they will present themselves against the Lord, you know, in full hardness of heart, and God will then destroy them because their their time has come. So he's, he's basically using them as part of their own judgment, which yeah. I think is an, it's a, an amazing thing. It really is. Yeah, it makes you marvel a great marvel, to be sure. <laughs> well, David, do you have any final thoughts before we close up this, this episode? I think uh, just to emphasize again something that we just touched on, that the, you know, John, John is seeing all these things at a time when um, it's not obvious that the whore is a whore. And it's not obvious that the beast is an awful beast. Um, John is seeing all of these things. He's seeing the whore of Babylon unmasked for what she really is. He's seeing, you know, this this uh, beast that wants to present itself as the glory of Rome. He's seeing it for what it really is. And the value of the book of Revelation for us, I don't think can be understated because we are so often um, influenced to see isn't it great? Isn't the world, isn't the the humanistic ideal, you know, aren't these things wonderful? Isn't, you know, the, the universal religious hope, isn't that a great dream? And so to be able to see them with the eyes of St. John and say, no, it's a whore and it's a beast. I don't want any part of it. Um, that's, that's why these things are written for us. Well stated. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, please check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or at Twitter, at wordfitly. I'm Zellan Heidi, here today with David Apple. God love you, and God bless. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Revelation 18, 2 through 4.